Hey everyone, and welcome to this special Soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. These Soapbox podcasts are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these editions paid to be here. And today's guest is Andrew Morris, the founder and CEO of Grey Noise. Now, Grey Noise is one of those companies that has a brief that sounds simple, uh, but they do something that's actually quite hard to execute, right? Uh, They detect malicious mass scanning on the internet so their customers can plug that data uh, into their sock to see if the IP they just got an alert on is something targeting them or targeting the whole internet. Now, you don't even need to be a customer, a Grey Noise customer, to get some use out of this service. If you want to know about an IP that you've seen an alert for, uh, just head over to greynoise.io and drop it into the search box. Magic awaits. Uh, Now, Grey Noise makes its money by selling API access uh, to its service, to that data, uh, basically. And uh, yeah, its customers mostly use it for SIEM enrichment. But as you'll hear, Andrew says Grey Noise is looking at moving toward actually blocking this type of mass scanning, uh, blocking it from hitting their customer environments. And they're even looking at working with telcos to scrub the most egregious stuff from the internet entirely. And uh, his rationale behind wanting to do this is pretty simple. Uh, he wants to narrow that aperture through which the mass scanning can fit through just to make it harder. But yeah, this interview isn't just about what Grey Noise is doing, it's also about the current state of mass scanning. Gone are the days when you could just increment IPv4 addresses and see everything. Uh, These days, you know, it feels like every website and web application on the planet belongs to about 10 CDN IP addresses. So yeah, mass scanning for web these days often involves attackers starting with domain lists uh, and looks a little bit kind of like, you know, open web asset discovery. Uh, And then there are the dumber scans that are just looking for vulnerable devices on their own IPs, VPN gateways, you know, open SSH, stuff like that. Uh, basically, mass scanning sophistication is a pretty broad spectrum. So here's Andrew Morris uh, talking about that. Yeah, I mean, pretty much spot on. So you've got, basically, there is, you know, rewind to the internet when the internet was many protocols, right? It was HTTP, but it was also SMTP. You've got mail servers, file transfer server, protocol servers. Like you've got Finger all these D. other different... You've got finger D, you've got gopher, right? You got all kinds of stuff, right? And so then like everybody kind of knows you need the sin, you need a sin act, that's it. And then you do like whatever the super basic protocol specific handshake is to get whatever it is you need. You batch that times 4.2 billion, you're done, right? And and that was kind of the paradigm. I mean, you know, anywhere from when the internet started all the way up to when centralized hosting providers started becoming super, super big and powerful and important and, and, and ubiquitous, Right. And so then to your point, exactly like basically web became its own sort of monster, because then you basically have there's well, you just basically rolled all of these services and turned them into web services and stuck them behind, you know, 80 and 443 web ports. Right. And all of that attack surface is still there. It's just, you know, we've we've gone from having a bunch of little services uh, to provide complexity to having one really big service, which is much more complex. Right. Which didn't really solve our problems, I guess is my point. Not to mention, people started using HTTP and web protocols for everything under the sun for every API ever, right? Whether it did or didn't make yeah, sense. That's kind, yeah, that's kind of my point, right? Is we just, we just took the entire internet and said, right. let's do this via HTTP. You are this protocol now. And yeah. the original protocol authors are like, wait, no, that's never what we meant. Like, 
So take, for example, Patrick, you and me are doing a video and audio call over HTTP calls in our browser right now. Like that in and of itself is a really great example of this. Yeah, but because if you just, asked if you asked earlier sort of engineers, right, from, yeah. from back in the day, they would have been talking, if they, they were asked to design a video conferencing spec, it was going to be its own client server, right? It, it was not going to yeah. go over web. Yeah. And so then now, I mean, you've basically got like the two different dimensions of complexity to it. One is the shared host where you've got one IP and many, many, many different websites. So you've got like the one IP and you're looking at basically a gazillion domains that are behind that added onto the complexity of that. You basically have pretty much, you know, nine things out of 10 on the internet are using HTTP as a protocol for things that have nothing to do with web functionality, like stuff like, you know, chat, mail, email, like all these other different things like that, that are still speaking well, and DNS over HTTPS, for God's sakes. Like, that's why, yep. you yep. know, some of the young'uns might wonder why we cringe at that. But it's just, it's 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 wrong. It's right. I mean, of yeah. course, of course, it's a better way to do it. But it just feels weird, doesn't it? It's inelegant. And, um, and it just basically creates a bunch of challenges that nobody necessarily expected. So basically, like, one of the reasons why mass scanning is very different now from how it was, like, 10-ish years ago is that you've got basically not only do you have to account for like the horizontal, the throughput, the actual socket packet management, packet crafting, et cetera, you've got all that. That Fortunately, you have a few different added benefits. Uh, the internet is simply faster. Cloud hosting providers make it super easy to recycle IPs. There's tooling that people have written, such as MassScan, UnicornScan, ZMap. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that that do make it actually quite a bit easier. So you don't have to be like a really fantastic computer scientist to get some code that does the thing that you want it to do. But so those things make it easier. But indeed, what makes it harder is that now you have to actually take into consideration things like, you know, what's the host name, which- Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's the whole game now has turned into understanding the nuance of the service that you've discovered and figuring out how to actually enumerate something useful from it, right? Which is a completely different game to it's doing, totally a, doing an internet-wide NMAP scan and going, okay, well, there's a vulnerable service. Let's go, you know, pull That's some exactly right. and POC the, off a forum and pop shell, right? It's just like an iceberg, right? Like if you uh, if you just scan the internet for a thing using just like a port scan method, like blasting SIN packets, getting them back, taking that and then doing whatever the protocol handshake is. If you do that way, looking for a thing, let's just say, I don't know, looking for like a version of, you know, like a like a WordPress plugin on the internet or something like that. If you just do it that way, and then you you actually do it intelligently, where you actually harvest out all the domains that you're going to be using, and you actually start, you know, moving through validating some of those things. But and this, actually, is, you, this is exactly my point, which is you need a yeah. starting list of domains, not IP addresses these days, right? You can't just go scanning for a WordPress plugin because you can't scan an IP for a WordPress plugin because half the time that IP belongs to a CDN and there's like 600,000 WordPress sites on it that may or may not have that plugin, right? Exactly. And and chances are whatever that hosting provider is that you're like looking at has basically TLS configured in a way that if it doesn't get the a valid, you know, cert in TLS initiation SNI, it's basically just going to be like, boop, dropped. Nope, you can't come through here. So if you get it wrong, then it's not going to allow you to come through until you get it right the way that a user would if they were browsing in a browser and typing everything incorrectly, right? So it's very different. The people you really want to talk to about this kind of thing are the bug bounty hunters. They are good at this kind of thing. Yeah, they right? are. And so like, well, and, th that's this why, is and that's why we've got this whole new field 
of like asset discovery, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of companies out there doing it. They got all these yep. weird tricks, right, to try to to try to uh, discover assets. You know, you're in a position where you're observing mass scanning activity. I'm guessing a lot of it is the same old stuff where you can just scan every IP on the internet looking for stuff like SSH that might be, you know, unpatched or old versions or whatever, right? So there's always going to be that stuff. But are you starting to see the people doing mass scanning doing some more exotic stuff and some more exotic enumeration? What's the state of the art of malicious scanning on the internet, Andrew? It's so broad. So basically, one of the really interesting things about the cat and mouse of it is that um, unless you are a three-letter agency that has God mode on looking at the internet, no one really knows what is actually happening from people who are mass scanning the entirety of the internet because you only have a number of different perspectives, right? No one necessarily, I mean, obviously, except for the, you know, the, the major telcos, the tier ones, and, you know, some of the, the spooky spy agencies, right? Like no one actually knows everything that's moving over across the internet. So even just getting the right variables in place to answer that question is extremely difficult. You don't know. And so the state of the art, it, it, I would say, Basically, it's going to vary from kind of your step one, which is what you're going to find of like, look, this is somebody effectively Z-mapping the internet, right? And then doing, they get a list of ports back. Then they're going to ask each of those ports, you know, for whatever the the standard that it is, whatever the, the standard port that it is, they're going to interrogate that protocol. And then if they get the thing back that they're looking for, they're going to do the next thing, right? There's some more advanced mass scanners that are intelligent enough to know, hey, I don't necessarily know that it's going to be the protocol or the service that normally runs out of that protocol, I should probably check for a number of different things, right? And so then even adding even more complexity, you're also going to have things like shared hosts and stuff like that. The state of the art is, if we're talking actively, because if you want to get real wacky with it, then what you'll do is you'll actually just listen to the way that something responds passively to figure out exactly what's listening on that port just based on the responses that it sends, which there are actually services that kind of- Well, there are, but fewer, fewer and fewer. And that was kind of what I was very, getting at, very, right? Like now you're like, you might connect to some service and you're like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. And you see, you're you, like, you I don't, don't know where these people get this data. Yeah, and you don't even but, know what command to send it or what syntax or, you know, you have no idea what it is. I mean, chances yeah. are these days it's going to be, you know, something involving gets, but that's yeah. about as far as you're going to get, you know? Yeah. Especially I, I if it's an API endpoint, right? Yeah. And so now, um, basically, I mean, the state of the art, the ones that do it really well, the people who scan the internet really well, they're basically scanning the internet from many different places. They're doing it very quickly. They're doing it very often, but they're not being so loud that they draw a ton of attention to themselves. They're doing it quietly enough that they're able to get away with it. And they're also doing it, I want to say almost like intelligently enough that you're not really able to link two and two together, that those two IP addresses that just scanned me on two different ports, they're the same actor. It's the same system. It's the same person. It's the same group that's doing this, right? And so piecing that backwards is really tricky. It's like a really fun kind of like, you're reversing almost like a state machine to look at like who's scanning for what, where's the data going, et cetera. Um, you can actually do it's a real, lot. With, it's real uh, mailroom, you know, Pepe in the mailroom, that white, exactly whiteboard like that, sort right? of thing, like, right? Yeah. I'm already feeling my eyes like roll into the back of my head as I'm talking about it. But so the really <laughs> smart ones, basically the really smart ones are doing it from a gazillion places. They have support for all the different protocols. They do it, you know, fast enough to have the data be up to date, but they do it slow enough, you know, from the different hosts or the different IP that you're not going to raise any unnecessary alarms and you're going to assume that you get blocked as soon as you hit somebody the first time. So that IP is burned for the next however long. So you're going to come the next time from somewhere else or 
the other people that do it really smart, they do it really dumb, right? So the other way that you would do it is just is just basically make it as stupid as possible. Try to look like a script kitty, yeah. right? And uh, and then yeah, you're gonna get blocked, but at least this way, no one's gonna know that like this is part of a really advanced system. the The B team wants to look like the A team, but the A team wants to look like the D team on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> that makes so, a lot of sense. So so let's just talk through like a a couple of different types of activity that you've observed. Like let's start on the advanced end because that's where it's always exciting. I mean, if you what what's the most sort of sophisticated mass scan type that you've seen and what was it trying to discover? Most mass scanning systems are like raw data that are a means to an end, providing raw data that are a means to an end of something. And whatever that something is, is going to highly influence my opinion of how effective I think it is. So on the more sophisticated end, this is where it gets really interesting. You remember how I was describing how there's a progression. It's almost like a, like a pyramid of sophistication, right? At yeah. the very bottom, you have scanning for ports. Then one step up above that, you've got actually crawling for web pages. And then one step above that, you've got conditional stuff. So you're only going to look for something if some set of criteria is satisfied. That's, way you, that's the way that you know, hey, look, this isn't a honeypot. That's how you're basically going to say like, look, only a real system is going to respond in this way. Now I can do the advanced thing. When it starts to get really, really interesting to me is basically when you have effectively like a really, really good way of knowing how to fingerprint a device without the person on the other end of it knowing what device you're attempting to fingerprint. So basically, let's say, all right, this is a spectrum. You've got a, a switch on the internet. You know that if you issue like a head request on port 80, it's going to come back. And it's basically going to say, hey, I'm a Cisco switch, right? But everybody knows on both ends of that equation, like exactly who you are, kind of what you're looking for. You're a scanner that is looking for, you know, a certain kind of thing. And if you get the response that you're looking for, then that's going to be how you're going to, that's how you figure out basically what the device is. What's really interesting is undocumented behaviors, bugs, right? And like esoteric behaviors and things like this, that's going to be your... I know that if I send a malformed packet that looks like this kind of thing, Cisco devices do this one really interesting thing on some blah, blah, blah TCP flag. But everyone who's looking at every side of that has no idea that that's what's happening. Yeah, so it's people so who understand like, the nuance, right? Exactly. You got to really get in the nitty gritty. Another side of it is when you've basically got kind of application specific and version specific vulnerabilities that are like buried deep inside the application. One of the really interesting things we saw with log4j is that first the whole like the really dumb pass happened where everyone's looking for, you know, basically they're just like blasting out that one exploit string that in, in like user agents and different parameters. But what we started to see like kind of immediately after this, it's a perfect example, was basically tailored application specific checks that know only a Splunk version 4.5.6 on this path is going to respond in this particular way. Anybody who sees that request is just going to be like, nah, I have no idea what this is. But if the device is the thing that the bad guy or whomever is looking for, then it's going to come back with like the effectively like the affirmative and no one is going to know that that's what you were looking for. In my opinion, the way that mass scanning is interesting has less to do with the technicals 
and the sophistication. And it has more to do with your ability to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish without the folks on the other side of it knowing what you're looking for and where you're coming from. It's interesting though, because I was asking you about the sophisticated stuff and I, I you know, I was expecting you to, to talk about this more in terms of, you know, asset discovery, right? And in terms mm-hmm. of being able to find stuff that's not so easy to find anymore. Uh, but it really does sound like where we are with mass scanning is, okay, there's all the website stuff and that's kind of a separate discipline now. Now mm-hmm. it's still very much about finding the devices you want to find, but doing it in a sort of more sophisticated and, 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 and delicate way. You can slice it into a number of different ways, but what I find is that there are kind of categories to how you would classify or identify. Rumble's really good at this. And then there's a number of other kind of like internet scanning companies that are actually good at this. You can do things like looking at, you know, like you just mentioned, Favicon. There's also basically things like protocol fingerprints and and like TLS fingerprints and things like that, which are kind of like one-to-one mappings. And and what you find is that there's always going to be that trade-off between accuracy and breadth of utility. Like this thing only works, this one method only works for like this family of product, but it works every single time versus look, you, this is a generic way to identify things using something like a TLS fingerprint. But the problem is that it's going to have a higher false positive ratio. And so this is where you're really making those actually calculated decisions of how you want to do it and refine it. And this is when it starts to become a much more advanced thing. You're starting to actually kind of put together a proper system and tune it for efficacy, as opposed to having any one trick that's just going to get you there, right? It's a combination of all these things. Some of them are more bandwidth intensive. Some of them are more intrusive. Some of them are actually more kind of like computationally expensive. Some of them are going to be more esoteric. Some of them are less esoteric. Some of them are going to be things that are going to raise IDS alerts. Some of them are not. And so this is where you start to see the really interesting compromises that happen. Yeah, I think it's, I I think one thing to make this, uh, you know, to drive this home to listeners. When we think about some of these ransomware attacks where people came in on vulnerable VPN border devices, like how do you think they've identified those targets, right? That is guaranteed to have been, you know, it's not like they picked this company and That's said, exactly you know, right. they mass scanned, they found them, they looked at the companies with the biggest revenues and then they hit them. Right. I mean, I, I'm guessing that's how they would have gone in via some of those Citrix bugs and Pulse Secure and whatever. Right. I think you're exactly right. So this is very difficult to prove comprehensively. There are ways that you can really test this. And I've seen some of this stuff happen firsthand before. But the long and the short is that there are entire classes of bad guy out there who basically pop shells first, figure out what they care about later the accesses are commoditized right Mm. it makes the threat model super super wacky i think we're still stuck as an industry and a lot of people that are making decisions in security organizations are still stuck in this universe where every attack and every compromise that happens follows that like okay well, first the bad guy is going to target us and then they're going to scan our network and then they're going to find our vulnerabilities. And while that is certainly still true, I think we all grossly underestimate (laughs) the amount of compromises that start off as being purely opportunistic, right? Like, look, a box got well ransomware ransomware is what flipped this on its head right and the reason yes. ransomware yes. ransom because ransomware monetized opportunistic attacks right that's like exactly that's why right. it became 
what it is today, right? And it exactly. totally makes exactly sense right. that if you've got some O'Day in some border device, I mean, step one, if I'm a ransomware actor, I'm going to go see who's who's got that device and who's vulnerable. I'm going to collect shells and, you know, I'm going to deploy ransomware into the most uh, profitable companies that I've that I've managed to rinse. That's exactly right. You're basically going to compromise as many devices around the internet as you can. You're going to do kind of two different sides of it, but you're going to compromise as many devices as you can. And then you're going to, after the fact, learn about where those organizations, what the organizations are that your accesses are in. And then what you're realistically probably going to do is you're going to sell them to your buddy. Yeah. Right? You're going to sell them to somebody else. You're going to say, I got an access inside the state department. Um, it's low level privilege. So you're going to have to do some work to actually make it useful, but I'll give it to you for a hundred bucks. Right. Yeah. And then, and then the, the people who are doing a lot of the like real nasty side of this are actually figuring out like, Oh, look, this is a municipal government. Like, you know, that these people probably have one it person on staff, right? Like there's no way that they have, you know, good security hygiene, right? Some, some people I've actually, I can't confirm this firsthand and I really need to go back and confirm this. I've read about basically actors that are only going after organizations that have cyber insurance policies yes. so that they know well, that they actually managed to break into one of the insurers. Like I look, I'm not sure how closely it, it tied up, but the thinking was, yeah, they, they managed to steal a list of people who had cyber insurance yeah. from the cyber insurer and then hit them because they knew, you know, because the, they know that they're going to pay out. They probably knew the, the, the extent of their coverage as well, right? So yeah. it's just, uh, it's unbelievable. But here's here's the thing, right? We've been we've been talking about all of these sophisticated ways to do subtle things and, you know, go deep and whatever. Mm -hmm. And now, mm -hmm. ultimately, the thing that we're talking about that's highest impact is a really dumb scan looking for, you know, a particular version of like a VPN or something. It's the speed. It doesn't matter how sophisticated or unsophisticated the bug is. What matters is that when the bug is announced, like when the vulnerability, when we become aware of the existence of the vulnerability, I'm talking, it is so fast. And I, I assure you, I'm not trying to scare people, right? This doesn't happen every time. It just happens enough times and it has happened enough times that like I've watched this whole thing play out a few times. The speed is unbelievable. The amount of time that it takes for a sufficiently kind of big deal vulnerability to go from being like, you know, announced or disclosed to actually like the proof of concept. The proof of concept is the big thing that actually makes the difference because bad guys don't want to like actually do the work of like, yeah. like writing a POC that's like stable. They're just going to be looking around at GitHub and a pastebin and like stuff like that to try to figure out where there's actually exploit code. And the amount of time in between that happening the, the vulnerability being announced or disclosed or whatever, and the exploitation of that thing on your perimeter is mind bending. It's funny and we had we had Mark Rogers on the show from uh, Okta, obviously, and uh, mm -hmm. we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago saying exactly the same thing. I'm telling yeah. you, it's insane. I, I this is the kind of thing that like it's really hard to talk reasonably about as a security person who really doesn't like FUD marketing. Cause I, I don't know how to say it without scaring the crap out of people. Like it's not, the end is nigh. Like it's not, that there's nothing you can do. No, about it's it. the end is here. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's, 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 that, it's that, it's that you just have to change the way that you think about it. You kind of really do. And a lot of people have been saying this for a long time. You really do have to assume that at very short notice, software that you have trusted for a long time with good vendors that really do care about security can go from being like by every single measure, super safe, 
right? On the perimeter, super safe, getting the crap beat out of it all the time and being resilient to all of a sudden some new information is available to everyone on the internet at exactly the same time. And people are going to start exploiting that thing everywhere and they don't care where they're going to land those compromises. They don't Duh. care where they're going to get because the shells Because Bitcoin is a thing now. Exactly, because, because now there's a thousand reasons why it doesn't matter. They just got to own a bunch of people and some of the interesting, some interesting targets are going to shake out of that. And that's part of what keeps this model moving. Mm. And it's just, it's really different because it's, it's, it feels a lot more, we were, we were joking about this earlier, but it feels a lot more like everyone is on the same land. Now. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a lot more like that. The internet feels a lot. It feels lanny. It feels lanny yeah. these days, doesn't it? You know, it you remember when you would, uh, you know, hit a website and the images would load just took, 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 yep. took. You, you really do feel much, much closer to all of the hosts on the internet now. And, um, and this last year has just been like, just more of these occurrences than I've, you know, I've seen before. And it's, it's crazy. I remember when, you know, Shellshock and Heartbleed came out, it was like, I think the same year. Right. And it yeah, was, it was within, around the same time. Say, yeah. Within a few months. And I remember thinking like, wow, it's never going to get worse than this. This is so bad. And then we had like Shellshock and Heartbleed type bugs like that like 20 times last year. Like it was crazy. Yeah. And so it's just, it's bizarre. And so the reason that you're seeing it, in my opinion, there's really no way to like properly know that this is like, you can't prove this because it's tricky, but the reason that you're seeing it is because it's working. Well, it's working and it's got, it, it's got easier, right? Because relative yeah. to other stuff, right? So, you know, I was around in the days when you would see pretty regular IIS and Apache like Odo's. Right. Yeah. Or, or in various Apache modules. And yep. that was how you would get owned. So, you know, there was a big rush to fix all that stuff. And you don't see those sort of bugs too much anymore. And then there was the big rush to the client side. You know, Internet mm -hmm. Explorer popping shells left and right. Because there was a time when people didn't do client side attacks. People thought client side attacks were sort of lazy and stupid. And they required quite often, you know, like uh, uh, someone to browse a malicious website or something. And you're like, eh, you know, that's kind of that's kind of stupid. You know, why would you bother with with that, those silly things on the on the client side, right? And then, of course, client side became all the rage. And the whole time, people like Adam Boileau saying you know, it's a matter of time before they start targeting the enterprise software, right? You know, when um, when pen test shops would actually just write O'Day for this stuff on the fly yeah. on a gig because it was so badly constructed, you know, you knew it was just a matter of time before the criminal element uh, discovered that uh, for themselves. And that's, that's, you know, really where I think it is, is we've built up this mountain of technical debt in business software. And uh, the chickens are kind of coming home to roost a little bit there, guy. So, so that's true. There's a lot of different ways that you can kind of slice this particular subject because it's so vastly complex and there's so many different pieces that are moving. But if you stand back far enough and you squint your eyes and you kind of think about it over time, there is a pattern that is sort of recurring that if you pay attention next time, you're going to notice some of the parts of this. I talk about the folks on the Gray Noise Research Team, me and them chat about this all the time. A bug comes out in a piece of software, okay? Like a bad bug in a super common piece of software. It comes out and then the for a brief period of time, the entire security community and specifically the entire vulnerability research community has 
is putting an insane amount of scrutiny on that particular technology. And a yeah. bunch of people are then figuring out like, wow, the way that Windows loads fonts inside of a browser is like extremely dangerous. Yeah. And a bunch of people kind of hey, realize the same thing at the same time. Let's render, that, like bad, let's render that bad boy in the kernel, baby. What could go wrong? Yeah. It's crazy. And so you see these patterns kind of over and over again. I remember after solar winds. But that's what I, I that's just, that's totally compatible with what I was saying. Because you know No, it's exactly yeah, the same. there's it's exactly a pile the on same thing. There's a pile yeah. on. People start getting results and then everyone piles on. And then, you know, people started hitting IE and everyone piled onto that, right? And then Exactly. You know, I remember what was so interesting just to demonstrate this was when solar winds happened, there wasn't even a software vulnerability in solar winds that was directly associated at the time with that with basically the debacle yeah but then and everyone just, then everyone had a look right then everyone had a look and they found them right yeah and and you're going to i've seen this so many times and it's like how many different log4j vulnerabilities came out after that one that came out i mean it was a lot it was a lot of different ones right and it's not necessarily because a piece of software was, you know, written by people who don't know what they're doing or like it's, you know, it's something like that. It's that part of it is that this is what happens when you have many, many, many thousands of people actively pouring over the code for something and finding, you know, bugs. And that's why like the classes of bugs and other different things like this matter so much. And here we are, we're all sitting on the same land all kind of figuring well, this out all the time. So one thing I want to put to you is that this pivot back to um, uh, back to server bugs, right? Because that's mm -hmm. what these border device things are. They are yeah. services, right? So mm -hmm. this pivot away from client-side exploitation and towards stuff like this has made a company that does stuff around mass scanning more relevant than it would have been five years ago, right? I like agree. the timing for you uh, is spectacular because now you are smack bang in the middle of a pretty bog standard attacker workflow, which yeah. is, you know, discover bug, weaponize bug, scan for bug, deploy shells, fire cannons, yep. pew pew. Yep. And, and, you know, and from our perspective, it's really interesting because what we do at Grey Noise is like simultaneously really, really cool and smart and simultaneously really obvious and kind of dumb that no one thought about it before which is we're basically just listening to stuff from a gazillion places. And when people start doing that mad dash, A, we can prove that the mad dash is happening. Like, hey, everybody, um, all these IDS alerts that are going off in these, like 80% of these are people that are doing it with everyone on the internet, right? And then the other the other ones are, are, are probably people that are coming after you. But to your point, like we are in an interesting position to be able to see this kind of stuff because it is, like you said, it's a lot of bugs in a lot of products that I don't believe most people would have thought were going to happen at the volume that it was going to happen at and at mm. the frequency that it was going to happen at. And in some of the products that people thought were going to happen and let alone be blasted around to the entire internet, right? And so it does put us in a good spot to see this kind of stuff. It's just dumb luck that, that we yeah. had the system kind of like built and running when a lot of these things started happening. Well, it's and interesting. It's interesting because your your you know phase one of Grey Noise's business has been okay. We can provide you telemetry uh, exactly. associated with with mass scans, right? Like this IP is scanning for this. This IP is scanning for that, and it's mass yep. scan activity. Uh, and the idea was people would pull this into their into their seam, uh, yep. use it to sort of 
give themselves a better understanding about what's targeting them, which mass scans are targeting what bugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, now, before we got recording, you were saying you want to take it into the next phase, which is you just want to start blocking this stuff because you feel you've got to a point where the fidelity of your detection of mass scanning activity is good enough that you can just block. Yeah. So what we've basically figured out, the first phase of gray noise was the intelligence product, right? We're going to tell you after the things already happen, we're going to tell you inside your SIM, which of the alerts that have already been raised, whether it was, you know, five minutes ago or two seconds ago or whatever, which of the alerts that were raised were things that were hitting everybody around the entire internet. And in gaming that out, what we figured out is like, yes, one of the really cool things about this is that we can help people kind of prioritize the things that are hitting them specifically and forget about the things that are hitting everybody, which is great. You know, it's an awesome efficiency boost. It's really good for situational sure, sure, awareness. Sure, but there is a limited set of very large customers who need yeah, that, right? Who are in a position so, to actually do something with that data. So I'm guessing most of your customers have socks, right? Which yeah, is, exa exactly. Which is the minority of companies out there, right? Right. And so what we've found is that the the a lot of our customers that find what we do to be really, really valuable, the logical next step for them is gaining enough confidence and trust in our data and being able to like kind of understand it as it relates to their network and get the right tooling in place and just block it all together. So that basically they're they're saying like, cool, I trust gray noise enough. It's been correct enough times that I'm basically going to say, I feel pretty good that I can block stuff that's inside this list. Uh, no revenue generating users or, you know, whatever revenue generating parties that have to be able to talk to my network are going to be disrupted. And I'm basically going to knock out of the air, like, you know, maybe nine out of 10 of the bad things that are coming towards my network at the perimeter. Is that a comprehensive defense? Absolutely not. Is that going to buy me some time when the shit's hitting the fan and there's a vulnerability that's out? There's maybe a patch. Maybe there's no patch. Maybe well, I can't I think patch it's, until this I weekend. think it's a good example of outrunning the person next to you when the bear is chasing you personally. I so agree. I think it will actually, in some circumstances, because they will actually miss you because uh, you're doing this. But, you know, I brought up something when you first suggested this to me where I'm like, you know, it's never the boxes that are behind your nice firewalls and, you know, network inspection gateways and whatever uh, that get rinsed in these sort of things. It's always the unmanaged stuff on far-flung bits of your network yep. to which you replied, well, that's why we want to partner with the telcos and, and, and do this as a, exactly. a telco-delivered thing, which makes, uh, which makes a lot of sense. But, you know, the question becomes, why aren't the telcos doing this themselves? Because as you already mentioned earlier, like they have a lot of visibility into nefarious stuff that happens on the internet. Why sure. are they not doing this? So internet background noise is you want to think about it really differently from just like broadly bad traffic because a broadly bad traffic has like a longer half-life and there is kind of like, you know, C2 communications is a lot more definitive of badness and, and other kinds of call it observables or indicators or whatever. They're, they're, they're different. And they're it's focusing as, on that stuff. It's exactly. And that stuff is not nearly as chaotic and as in in fast of a flux and have sh as short of a half life of validity um, and and that kind of stuff is rarely coming from a quickly cycling IP and is rarely only useful for five minutes or something like that. Right. The reason why I think there's a few different reasons why the telcos and the in the major internet service providers don't do stuff like this. So one of them, and I can rattle them off in no particular order. I also don't want to throw any of them under the bus because we are building partnerships with some of them right now. So, <laughs> so if you here's, think I'm here's talking about you, valued future partners uh, are doing if wrong. You, yeah. If you think I'm talking about you, valued internet service provider partner, it's not you. It's your direct competitor. Um, so 
basically like the long and the short is there's a few reasons why they don't do it. One, the internet service providers are huge and doing anything is difficult. And as it is with any large organization, especially something that's new and complex, right? Um, the second thing is that uh, downtime or dropping packets or dropping things is like, the internet service providers are like allergic to this. Have you ever been to a Nanog before? I was banned from Nanog because I snuck in there as a journalist uh, something like 20 years ago. And yes, I, I was banned. So I don't want to get in any trouble with the Nanog crowd, but the long and the short is that if you meet like basically the crowd of people who like really run the internet, you'll talk to them for five minutes and you'll basically be like, oh, running the internet is like, your religion like like actually moving packets across the internet at insane speed and and having fantastic uptime and not dropping packets this is like what the network crowd does right so as soon as absolutely anybody introduces even even you know introduces the notion of blocking something that's going to have any kind of impact on, you know, moving that traffic from, from A to B. Man, I gotta tell you find I, a lot of I gotta tell you a story here because and this is a bit old man of the internet, right? I was wearing an onion on my belt because that was the style at the time. Uh it's that it's that sort of story. But I think it was one of the one of the sequel worms back in the day. It was Slammer or Blaster. I don't remember which one. But the way this worm operated is it had shellcode in a UDP packet of a fixed length. So I think it was it was quite small too. It was like 419 bytes or something. And that's what was going so berserk because this is back in the day when you could find enough SQL servers on the internet to actually get a worm to blow up. And yep. uh, yeah, so it was it was crippling the internet. And at the time, this idea among the network operators that no, we don't touch the packets, we just deliver them, you know, we don't filter. Yep. And this is yep. why I snuck into Nanog as a journalist, because it was kind of at this point where it's like, look, that's a great philosophy, but the internet doesn't really work today because you guys aren't yeah. filtering a fixed length UDP packet on a funny port, right? Yeah. And in the end, they did filter it. They did, but I, as far as I know, that was the first time they'd taken a step like that because it was just the internet was not working properly. Routes were flapping around. Like the whole thing just went sideways. And in the end, they had to do that. They had to just say any UDP packet of this length uh, with these parameters. And I, as I say, it was a, there was yep. a, some sort of you're not allowed port. to go. That's it. Drop anymore. it. And then everything everything bounced back. The internet worked again, right? Because they just took yep. it off the backbone. But then when they figured out I was a journalist who was like, they were like, you, out. And then uh, that's, yeah. how the, that's how the ZDNet um, Sydney IP range wound up being blocked from Nanog. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's my story. And, you know, it reinforces what you're saying where there is this sort of religious thing. And they saw me bringing this to light as a journalist as like some kind of assault because they're like a, you know, very tight-knit group who don't like so to, to be to be like yeah because yeah, i'm like i really don't want to get in trouble with this crowd so like yeah it's a, they, they got a, like they got a stone cutters vibe about them to yeah, use yeah, another yeah. simpsons uh reference. exactly it's like it's like somehow like even though the internet's not that old it's like somehow like a, cr a it's an ancient society yeah i also picture them in robes right yeah, yeah yeah exactly and you're like this doesn't make any sense but it just feels right right <laughs> so like basically like these are the people like this is the only way that you know like that that we got here is that we have this like you know incredible group of people that are moving all this traffic and and you know billions of people don't even know that it's happening because it's just all the work that they do just works moving all this stuff across the planet right it just works and um and that's what we need but to your point yeah i mean sometimes our 
our understanding of a sufficiently complex problem becomes a little bit more clear. We understand like, look, I don't want to mess with people's traffic. I don't even want to know what it says, right? Like, I don't but, I mean, you're not, you're not you suggesting moving, doing right? this. You're not suggesting doing this at the backbone. You're suggest suggesting doing this at the edge, right? Which is a different proposition. So I'm, I'm from, from my perspective, the, the further upstream, the better. Yeah. And, and what, what that so means is So you are suggesting like, doing it at the core, right? I mean, that's, that's the way, that's the way that you would really do it. You, you know, that's the way that you would have the best results, but that's also where, you know, there's where you're the going to run into the people who wear error. the robes. Yeah. I mean, that's where, that's where it's the lowest margin of acceptable, the lowest acceptable margin of error. That's where you've got all kinds of stuff that you don't want to get wrong. And that's where, you know, it's going to make some people feel really uncomfortable that, that, that people are messing around with that kind of stuff. Right. But my, my opinion is that the, the, that's the place where the most good can be done. That's mm. the place where the largest impact can happen with the least amount of effort well, required for all of yeah. the, I don't mean of them, of the, of the customers. Right. I'd because imagine, I'd thing, imagine too, that you've, you know, well, here's the question. How receptive are the telcos to this? Uh, so basically in my experience so far, everybody wants to have the, the, the cut body, but nobody wants to lift any heavy ass weights. So everybody wants the impact. Everybody wants the effect that it creates, right? Everybody wants to have basically like a security offering where you don't have to install any hardware or software. You check a box, it's just on, it just works. And all your users are using your stuff like normal and you don't really have to think about it, right? That's what people love. They love products that you don't really have to think about and it just works, right? Everybody wants that, right? But as soon as you start actually talking about some of the mechanics, it scares the crap out of people. And it takes time just to build that trust with them and for them to really kind of get it and, and move things forward and do... and mind you also these are old businesses that are sometimes made up of they're kind of like banks they're made up of like many many sprawling consolidated regional see that's you know, why that's why providers. i would have thought offering this as a checkbox option sort of going with the arbor networks business model right where they installed some arbor equipment in the telco and then you yep. could route certain customers through that that's where i would have thought it would make the most So that's sense. the thing for me. I I think for the for the first pass of this, it it makes the most sense to not route anything differently at all because I don't want us. I don't want. I don't want to have to explain to people that their traffic is coming to me, but I promise I'm not looking at it. Right? No, but not I mean, come to me even routing through just a bit of equipment that you maintain on the telco premise, right? Like that's sure. more no. what I had in mind. So that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And like it, the the how of it is the long and the short is that. ISPs do have means of blocking large amounts of IPs from being able to move from one network to another or from, you know, the internet, right, to one of their customers. They yeah, do have yeah, ways yeah, of doing yeah. it. I mean, I guess, I guess that's the point, isn't it, right? Like, they don't, they don't need extra boxes to block IPs. They're a telco. Right, they've got that stuff exactly. already, yeah. They've got that stuff already, but a lot of it is so there's, there's kind of two different, there's a number of different challenges in here. One of them is like the change, sort of the refresh windows, right? How often can you load a new list of definitions of IPs that you're not going to be routing traffic on, right? And then and then the, the other component of it is just basically, so aside from how often that actually comes, it's how large or small that list can be. Because when you're talking about, you know, core backbone, sort of the switches that are moving gazillion, billion, zillion packets, you know, every second, you start having to get really close to the metal 
and you start having to get like really well optimized hardware that's probably been running in Iraq somewhere for you know 25 years or something yeah. like that, right? Some FPGA so this, thing that's liquid cooled, right? Exactly, exactly. Or or like you know now what's really cool is that you can do a lot of this stuff with like eBPF and you can do stuff with mm. basically like kind of like bit code that's actually pushed out to a NIC so it's never actually having to come into the computer. There's a lot of different advances that make this like a lot more viable than it would have been 10, 15 years ago, but it, it just takes taking up. It takes time. And from my perspective, all I want is I want to be able to tell people who are on the internet, I want to be, customers who have network perimeters. I want to say, hey guys, look, you don't have to live like this. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to have all of this hardware in all these different places, right? Like the, the means are all there. All you have to do is this, 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 block these, move this quickly. I mean, I, I think, you know, it sounds like you've got a bunch of different ways you could do this, right? You could maintain some hardware for some of the telcos that they could route, you know, through you uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to the customer. You could, but you could give them a sort of sub list of the worst stuff uh, that yep. they could so then that's, block. that's yeah. the other... The good thing about it is like, yes, the internet is crazy noisy. Like any one routable IP address on the internet is going to see unsolicited, you know, scan, attack, sin communications from anywhere from one to 3000 distinct IP addresses every day. And there's a, there's a very particular overlap between all of those, mm. but there is going to be like a list of, you know, a hundred thousand odd hosts that are like really noisy. And then the other ones are like lower and slower or they're round robining or whatever. So to your point, you're exactly right. And so, you know, you can still get a lot of value out of just blocking the most egregious offenders. And that's something that, that does actually provide quite a bit of value to the customer. And then everyone has to go low and slow. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, <laughs> what you will, from my perspective, what it actually affords you is that it means that the only attacks that make it through are the ones that are unique and special to each customer. They're targeted, right? It involves mm. the, 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 the bad guy has to do more work and be a little bit stealthier. And that's what we want. Right? Mm. We want the bad guy to have to go through a lot more shit and be inside of a much more narrow aperture where human analysts can actually look at that and track that stuff down because that's the kind of stuff that only a human can do. Right. Well, Andrew Morris, sounds like you've got some work to do there with the uh, with the telcos, right? And I wish you the best of luck with it because uh, anything that can cut down uh, on the sheer volume of silly scans out there is always going to be good. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat to you, my friend. Thank you very much. Patrick, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. That was Andrew Morris of Grey Noise there with a chat about mass scanning and what he's doing about it. You can find Grey Noise at greynoise.io, G-R-E-Y-N-O-I-S-E.io. And yeah, if you're in telco land and you liked what you heard, I can obviously always recommend a chat with Andrew. It's always fun. Uh, and that is it for this edition of The Soapbox. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. We'll